Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Changes. Hello folks, it's Annie McManus here. I uh, hope you're doing good. My big change this week is I have a tiny little kitten curled up by my feet. Um, I never really thought I'd be into cats. I don't know why. I just never, I was always thought I was a dog gal. But um, yeah, since getting this kitten, I'm really understanding the pull of having a cat. And if you listen to the episode with Gabor Mate, you will have heard me complaining about rattling around the house all day on my own. And um, this cat has really helped with that, I have to say. It's just lovely to have another sentient being around just to talk to and um you know they can meow back so it's it's really ideal um we've been talking a lot about incremental changes on the podcast those really small little tweaks that you can make to your life that really contribute to a sense of well-being and you've been um messaging me with what you've been doing and it's lovely to hear you know everything from having cold showers instead of hot showers or getting up every morning and just having a 20 minute walk to yourself these things are small but can end up being really big in terms of impact uh, to your daily kind of sense of fulfillment I suppose so yeah let's keep talking about change I'm, I'm mad for it and this week's episode of changes features some extreme change in terms of our guest's life let's hear from him I knew I needed to change my life completely. It was it was toxic, my life in London. Uh, I was doing way too many drugs, um, not really going out, not using London, not going to museums, not going to this, because I felt the need that I had to perform and be Patrick, the, the one that they wanted, not the one who was actually really sad and depressed and really didn't want to talk to anybody. That is the voice of Patrick Cox. Patrick Cox was the most sought-after shoe designer of the 90s. He created the infamous modern-style loafer, the wannabe, which was wanted and worn by everyone across the decade of the 90s. Every pop star you can think of had them. George Michael, Michael Jackson, Bob Dylan, Boy George. I mean, the list goes on. As many as one million pairs a year were sold. They were not men's shoes. They were unisex and they were completely aspirational uh, and kind of classless too, worn across raves, across football terraces, as well as the red carpet. Patrick was as famous as his shoes. He lived the high life, was infamously nicknamed by Janet Jackson. You will hear this in this conversation. Uh, And he was great friends with Elton John, Kylie, Elizabeth Hurley. Safe to say Patrick has experienced some extreme highs in his life. Alongside those highs, there has been crippling lows. Patrick now lives in Ibiza and he is a disciple and facilitator of a psychedelic called toad. That comes from the venom of a specific type of toad that I think originates in Mexico. 
So his life has changed dramatically since the 90s and I wanted to hear all about it. So I was in Ibiza last month doing some DJing and I called by his beautiful villa and sat on his terrace amongst the wind chimes and the birds and spoke to Patrick about his life changes, including his latest experience with the toad poison. Now, I should, of course, say that this is not an endorsement in any way of Toad, but purely a sharing of Patrick's personal experience. I was tempted to ask him if he had any, but I did have a corporate gig that night for a management consultancy firm at Ashwaya, and I didn't think it was probably a good idea to rock up there a little bit loose from this Toad. (laughs) But no, in all seriousness, I was fascinated to hear about everything. So... How and why does a man go from being an A-list shoe designer with the most bonkers celebrity stories to working with psychedelics in Ibiza? Let's find out. Well, Patrick Cox, hello, welcome and thank you for being on Changes. Thank you and welcome to my home in Ibiza. It's so beautiful. It's going to be very hard to keep my eyes on you and not on the just overwhelmingly beautiful view of the pool and then just the hills stretching into the distance. It's beautiful It's lovely to be here. Thank you. So let's start, if you don't mind, with the childhood change. Sure, okay. Tell me about the move and and also the moves. Well, I'll I'll lead up to the move, the big move. But um, I'm born in Western Canada, Edmonton, Alberta, 1963. Um, In 1965, my parents moved us, my real brother, my mom, my dad, to Lagos, Nigeria. My dad worked for the Canadian International Development Association, CEDA. So we weren't diplomats, but it was such a small international community way back then. Mm. So... We were in the diplomatic community, but we, we weren't diplomats. We lived there two years. Um, the Biafran War broke out. Right. Um, essentially, you know, millions, millions died. Can um, you remember anything from this time? Being like... I mean, you, you know... It's, you, it's normal It's your life. reality. Yeah, you yeah. know, I remember, you know, we didn't really have TV and things like that back then. So I remember going to the British ambassador's house to watch Batman every Saturday and, <laughs> you know, having English things and then going to the American ambassador's house and having hamburgers. And, you know, it was a mm. very small little community sort of thing. When things. war broke out, did you leave then? Uh, we didn't leave for a long time. Yeah. But um, our, the people who worked for us were all Igbo, which was the tribe that um, was fighting the Yoruba. And they all had to leave. And then my mom just said, you know, we got to go. <laughs> this isn't a place to raise kids, you yeah, know, the machine yeah. guns at night, whatever. Mm. This, this is this is not a place to raise kids. So then we moved to Chad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so out of the frying pan, literally into the <laughs> fire, fire, moved to the middle of the Sahara Desert. We lived there a year kind of as wards of the state. Right. Like this was the president's house and this was the prefet's house, which is like a prime minister next to it. And this was our house. Wow. <laughs> we were just, yeah. um, our whole garden, our whole yard was sand. The servants grew peanuts because that was the only thing that grew in the actual sand. Um, there was a river at the end of the road and we learned the rule don't go out at night because if you get between the water and a hippo you're dead sort of wow. thing so there were hippos mm-hmm. and crocodiles coming out of the river at night um, it was wild <laughs> and you, you were experiencing this with your brother yeah how old was he what was the difference then uh, he's two years older than me two years older than you two okay so you had, a, you, had a, you had a buddy to run around with yeah, run around the fat but me and my brother never really got along until right. the last let's say three years so um, 
it wasn't really the dynamic you'd hope yeah. for. Yeah. Um, and what kind of people were your parents? So if you look at my mum and dad's wedding picture from 1959, yeah. she's like something out of like the 50s. She's got cat's eye glasses, got like a prom dress on. So we know where you got hair. your fashion credentials yeah, yeah. from. And my dad, you know, he was from the east end of London. He moved to oh. Canada, met my mum. Yeah. So he looks like someone out of the Beatles. He's got this skinny little suit, skinny little tie, and just looks so English next to my like prom queen mum sort of thing. Yeah. And then the 60s arrived and, you know, people went one way or the other. My mom just wanted to be a suburban housewife. I mean, right. she got dragged all over the world, poor woman, yeah. by my dad. And my so dad, she didn't really love the travel aspect? Um, she was still in love with her husband and she loved her children, so she was doing what she yeah. could do, but... It's yeah. a lot to throw someone ask. into yeah, that. Because he's going to work. Yeah, yeah. She's the yeah, one at home. So she's at home yeah. dealing with everything, yeah, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, in Chad, she didn't speak French. So that that was a problem already. Yeah. Uh, me and my brother learned. My father's a linguist. He speaks about 10 languages. That's what he does for a living. He, yeah. you know, teaches at university and studies languages. So me and my brother picked up French very quickly, which meanly we would argue in French so my mum didn't understand yeah. what we were and saying. And that's, that's isolating, isn't it's it? It's so isolating, yeah. but even your children are isolating yeah. you, I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, that's something I've learned in my disagreements with my mother of my life is yeah. empathy yeah. for their feelings. So um, we lived there uh, and then we left and then we went to Cameroon and we were going to stay a full seven-year placing that my right. dad had booked up for in Cameroon. And within a year, my mum... Announced to my to me and my brother, we're going home without dad. Right. So that was essentially the divorce. That was okay. I think 1971. And did you remember any of that? Can you remember? I remember all that? of that. Was there because signs? By then in Cameroon, yeah, there was arguing all the time. Sure. Okay. My dad was very condescending to my mom. He was an academic. He was an intellectual. Right. Um, so he hung out with his students. He hung out with you know university profs. He got long hair, earrings, started smoking pot. My dad listened to Santana, The Beatles, right. um, The Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, I met Mick Jagger at a party like what early 90s I right. can't remember at a Notting Hill party I met my dad I was smoking a joint and he came over to me can I have some of that and I was like sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we just sat there on the bed smoking pot and all my friends like oh my god he's <laughs> sitting in this bedroom at this party smoking Smoke pot with Mick, with Mick Jagger so I didn't have very much of a relationship with my dad where I remember how much Mick Jagger meant to my dad so I called him up and told him and he's just so stuck in his class warfare he was like middle class art school ponce it was all about the Beatles. They were working class. And I went, oh, my fucking God, Dad. Yeah. I don't <laughs> even fucking Jagger. I was just yeah. giving you a story to try yeah. to bridge yeah. a 20, 30-year <laughs> gap between us, and you still shoot me down. Yeah. So Then um, we came back. I remember saying to my mom, what's Canada like? And she went to the kitchen, opened the freezer, and pointed inside of it like that. Wow. And I'm like, I mean, that's incredibly accurate. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, especially, well, especially for a child. Edmonton, Alberta, too. We're yeah. talking 60 below zero is normal, you know, wow. not every day day but it, it can happen so we moved back um somewhere mid-air my father decided to cancel our credit cards and in the 70s a woman didn't exist she was an extension of her husband mm. she wasn't maureen cox she was mrs terry cox mm. so uh, we landed in safari suits you know i <laughs> literally linen and it was 30 below zero when we landed and my mom took us straight to the hudson's bay company which is like a department store yeah and um went to buy us full snow suits and downfills and everything and they cut up the car in front of her <laughs> and that oh was our god. welcome welcome home to canada oh my god and that was what i say is the biggest change in my life because 
yes, there was all sorts of turmoil going on in Africa and things like that, but it was such a free childhood. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I would get sent home from school constantly in Canada for being a fantasist because they're like, he's talking about elephants again. He's talking about, you know, and it's like, no, 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 we, we lived in Africa. Um, that was one of my biggest changes of my life. It wasn't going to Africa because I knew no better. Mm. It was coming back um, to the stifling conformity of suburbia mm. and to vastly reduced circumstances and having what what happened to us you know living in a basement flat me and my brother sharing a room my mom had a room my mom being a full-time worker it was just the normality of it and the well and the oppressive weather you know yeah i mean yeah. okay it's, I mean, it's oppressive such... being in chad when it's 40 above but you could do things still yeah <laughs> you can go it must chase have been snakes culture shock i mean serious yeah. culture shock. and also just being around white people yeah yeah it <laughs> was just you know, all of a sudden you're yeah. like oh wow yeah. i mean in edmonton there aren't a lot of black people but the bigger culture shock with me was going to school and having someone swear at me and you know i went home to my mom and i was like what does that 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 mean yeah. and my mom was like where the hell did you hear that? Because we were in a bubble in this little international community. Yeah. So it was just this sense of Everything around otherness. you was yeah. being turned upside down. Yeah. Your family unit. And then being accused by authority figures of sort of making it up. Yeah. Being a fantasist. Yeah. So you're like, was, there was an injustice to it, which yeah. I just started to have this internal rebel system that I was always going to work for myself. I was never going to work for anyone else. I was just all these sort of things because I just believed kind of... The game was rigged. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing I could do to it, so I had yeah. to just do it my way. And you left when you were 17, right? Yeah. 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 Was that always on the cards? You were always getting out? I didn't know it was going to be quite so extreme as it was. My mother and I had not got along um, a lot. Um, you know, it was, it was very disciplinarian, to, to put it mildly. Um, and I've done work since, and I was just realized she was just reacting to the situation that she had in her hand, mm. <laughs> you know, because I spoke to my mom recently and she said, I was just so angry. And I was like, you know, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get all the things you did. I said, but, you know, you know, there has to be a sense of empathy, mm. you know, because she wasn't happy with her lot. And she had two very mouthy, <laughs> very yeah. intelligent gay children, gay sons, because yeah. my, my brother's gay, too. Right. OK. Yeah. So she had that at home all day long, which cannot be. When did something. you realize um, I always knew I was gay, probably since the age of about four. Just noticed I was looking that way instead of looking that way. I, mean, I wasn't going to do anything, yeah. but you just knew something. But did um, you know what gay was? I mean, Not really. I just knew there was something was different. I was okay. not doing what everyone else was doing. Not, well, no one was doing anything, but just yeah. not ooing over a pretty girl or, sure. you know, all those sort of things. That's kind of wonderful, isn't it, that you had that self-awareness and didn't have to go through that? Well, there was the... the the struggle and it was my brother's gayness <laughs> did you know he was gay uh well i think um my mom and my dad went away and the rocky horror picture show was playing in town right. and i was 15 and my brother was 17 and him and his boyfriend and this guy that was practically a drag queen very camp came over and getting ready and i said i want to go i want to go i want to go and he goes mm, my god no way are you coming to see were, were you out at this point no 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 sure. he didn't knew nothing at all and there only was two gay clubs in edmonton so he would have known sort of thing so i i took him aside and i said does it help if i tell you i know you're gay and he goes you what? And I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, it's so obvious. I think I've walked in you and your boyfriend several yeah, times. Yeah. I mean, you really yeah. haven't figured it out by now. And so they eventually let me go to Rocky Horde, whatever. And I said, don't tell mom. My brother instantly that night, I think, told mom. Yeah. Um, so she became very liberal um, in that way. So she let his boyfriend stay over because um, right. she would say these Shakespearean things like, the whole world has shunned them. I cannot shun them in my own house. And I was yeah. like, 
Okay, calm down, Mama. Love the drama. <laughs> yeah, drop the drama level just a little. <laughs> and then when I um, announced that I was gay, um, she just kind of went berserk on me. Um, she's like, you can't be gay. Yeah, Ted was always like that. She goes, you were good at sports. You, you, you're popular. People like you. And I was like... You don't have to be bad at sports and dislike to be gay. <laughs> I was like, whoa, and I'm not really good at sports. I can just don't get killed, but you know, yeah. let's not get carried away here. Yeah. Um, and I was out of the house within a few months after that. Things just, wow. just broke. So I moved out. Um, my brother had broken up with his boyfriend. His boyfriend lived in downtown Edmonton. So I moved in with him. We we become friends, so we, we were friends. And um, I had accelerated my learning at school because I was kind of ahead anyway so once I moved out during the summer I went to Alberta College it's an adult college so everybody was adults doing higher education or whatever and me <laughs> and I did my last year of school in six months I accelerated I walked down the street from where I was living I got a job in Safeway in the fruit and veg department Love it. a lot of kinky stuff goes on in yeah. the produce department let I me bet. just tell you <laughs> the things I witnessed I was like whoa who knew who knew um, and then as soon as I finished uh, within six months then um, the next year I moved to, to Toronto So your second change, of which there's two parts, <laughs> and we're going to focus on part one now. Tell me about this big change that happened to you with regards to shoes. Two shoes. Okay. So um, I knew nothing about fashion. I mean, you know, when I, when I finally eventually arrived to Europe and met people yeah. like a John Galliano or something like that, I was like, what are they talking about? You know, I was, you know, I was a kid from the suburbs. To me, fashion was you know, um, dynasty, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was what I saw on TV. That was my number yeah. one source. Um, and I used to watch a show called American Bandstand, which is, I guess, America's equivalent to England's Top of the Pops. Oh, right. Okay. And it was disco. And I yeah. was obsessed with disco. I was obsessed with platform shoes. I'm, all my memories go of platform shoes. I mean, visiting England during Donny Osmond being number one mm. and going to Pennycoat Lane and there was an article in paper about people falling down the escalators in London because right. they're wearing the platforms the shoes. and yeah. it was the Biba time and then my favourite bands were ABBA platforms yeah. Kiss platforms yeah. Elton platforms all very extra, all very extra by the <laughs> yeah, way I'm yeah. loving it well it was the 70s it was you know incredible. I didn't go for the hard rock guys yeah, I went yeah. for the glam ones Love I mean it. Bowie didn't make a dent in Western Canada so I'm yeah. sorry but I didn't know anything about Bowie yeah. I will say the Bay City Rollers became quite big and they was a quite a big shoe too so I got into the power of dressing up going to nightclubs after I came out noticed that I was being noticed um and then when I moved to Toronto, it accelerated greatly. Um, mm. There was more of a scene. There were more clubs. I started to be noticed. I appeared in the paper a couple times for, you know, what I wore that day, things like right. that. Then I got asked to be doorman of the trendiest club in town, which was called Voodoo. And then I started working with a clothing designer, not because I knew how to cut a pattern or had even been to one yeah. day to fashion school, but because they liked having me around. I knew everything yeah. that was going on. I had a great style, what I was wearing. And that man was a designer called Lucas Cleanthos, which was one of Canada's biggest designers. And he, while I was working on the shoes for a fashion show for him, said to me, I went to London in 1976 during punk years. There's a shoe college there. You should go to that. Yeah. All I heard in that sentence was London. Yeah. <laughs> Freedom. Yeah. London. Because yeah. everything, you know, I liked hip hop and what was coming out of New York in the early 80s, but I'm much yeah. more identified with England. And yeah. I had an English passport since yeah. birth, so it was just calling me. So I 
flew to London in May 1983 to find the college and do some shopping and do some clubbing. Yeah. I did some shopping. I did some clubbing. I didn't even <laughs> think of finding the college. And so I got back to um, Toronto and I went, oh shit, I never <laughs> found the college. <laughs> and I'm moving in September. My lease is up on my apartment. I'm like, what am I doing? So the friends I'd met here in London connected me with the college. Cordwainers College was unknown of at the time. I mean, now you'd have to submit a portfolio and go through an interview process and probably 500 people apply for the 30 positions. I, I got accepted uh, and then went. And then it was, you know, people say, why shoes? I said, I could have been staring at hats. I could have been staring at really anything. It was my determination to not fail and go back to Canada. It was my determination to go forward. In school, I was a SWAT. I never did anything remotely artistic. It was physics, chemistry, biology, math, French, English, German. And the reason why is because I didn't want someone else's opinion. <laughs> I wanted to be right or wrong, mm. and this is how. Mm. Where with art, I could have killed myself, and they're going, I don't like it. Yeah, it's subjective. <laughs> and yeah. I just couldn't mm. deal with that gray area. Mm. Now I live my life in the gray, because yeah. I've learned that not everything is black and white. So um, I just rationalized it to myself that shoes were more like architecture, because a shoe standing on its own is like a building. It has an inside and outside and a concealed supporting structure. Sure. And the seam allowances and everything is so precise on footwear. I've talked myself into it that I could do it. Yeah. Um, and then um, uh, moved to London, had fun. Then New Year's Eve, um, <laughs> New Year's Eve between 1983 and 1984, I'm yeah. in the loo of this um, uh, speakeasy that used to exist in Soho called Pink Pussycat. It's about two in the morning. I'm in the bathroom and all the Vivian Westwood gang come into the bathroom. So when you say her gang, you mean her friends? Or her, no, no, her, her team, team. Her team. Her people team from the from store, the fashion people from house. the studio, things yeah. like that. People would be my age. Mm -hmm. um, and this is going to sound crazy, but Vivian was half the reason I moved to England. I was obsessed by her. You know, she was yeah. doing the most amazing things yeah. um, and really represent freedom, represented London. And they came over to me like, you're that American boy that shops in our store. And I went, Canadian, actually. Yeah. And like, um, you we like you, you can hang out with us basically. You know, right. words yeah. that I'd been accepted yeah. at the fold, which sounds so ridiculous, but meant so much. Of course. Because I'd yeah. only lived in London the six months at this point. I was still yeah. going, what the hell is going on? I yeah. don't understand this place at all. Uh, and that was the beginning. And then that was New Year's Eve. And then David Staines, Vivian's right-hand man, he needed a place to live. I had been staying with some people I'd outworn my welcome, so I got a flat and he moved in with me. Right. And then like February, another month later, Vivian and him were designing the collection. They realized they'd forgotten all about the shoes. And so David said, oh, my flatmate's a shoe designer. I'm in my first year of college. I knew nothing. I knew absolutely <laughs> nothing. So I go to a meeting with Vivian and sit across from my goddess, and she pulls out this three-tongue sneaker that was a development on the white square-toed one they'd done in the Witches collection. I don't right. know if you know, but these are all iconic Vivian shoes. Yeah. And um, she said, what do you think? And so I just made some suggestions. I said, you know, make it in patent so it's not mm. quite so sneaker-like and everything. Mm. And it had a real rounded feel. And I said, why don't we round the platform on the sole? Just put a little platform and round it so it just yeah. has a whole round Minnie Mouse feeling. Yeah. I did not know that she was working on the Mini Crony collection. The <laughs> and time. it was all rounds and polka dots and yeah, round yeah. shapes and everything. So that went down really well. And that was the beginning of doing that. Vivian had no money. Um, I mean, I worked at the store at the time. We could only take cash because we had no credit cards. Yeah. We had to follow the clients around with candles because there was no electricity. I mean, <laughs> she was literally, there was, there was nothing going on at that point. So I organized getting the shoes done. In the meantime, while doing what Vivian asked for, I'd gone and done something of my own accord. So I designed this, it had about a four inch platform gold knotted sandal. 
it was a cross between like Ferragamo and Minnie Mouse sort of thing. And I'd made three pairs of my own accord. Yeah. And so as I'm unpacking the shoes in Vivian's hotel room and they're going through everything, I pulled out these. And, you know, I just waited quite and she looked at them and she went, Ugh. Platforms, how 70s, yeah. which has come back to haunt her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she said, pretty well platforms ever since, but yeah. at the time she was not ready for it. Yeah. Um, so did the shoes for the show. The show is mega late. Uh, it's two hours late. People are walking out, oh, bedlam backstage and everything. And they were still styling the show. And so they just threw all the clothes and all the shoes in the middle of the room after doing one outfit for each model. And they said, yeah. when you come off the runway, just throw yourself in the pile, get something and get back out there. Someone not me, yeah. through the gold platforms into the pile. So the gold platforms, the girls loved them, the models yeah. did, of course. So they ended up going out way more than three times, even though yeah. there only were three pairs. Right. And that was kind of the the start of everything. Wow. And the audience was John Flett, John Galliano, you know, all yeah. the next wave of British designers. And I kind of became the go-to shoe guy of British Fashion Week for the for the 80s. But of course, you are known most well for the wannabe. For the wannabe loafer. <laughs> now, you have described the success of that wannabe loafer as the perfect storm uh, in an interview that I read. And I, and I wondered, maybe you could talk me through the factors that contributed to wannabe being as big as it was, in your opinion. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I used to say, am I riding the wave or am I just holding on for dear life and probably the wave doesn't kill me? Because people were like, you're doing this well, you're handling it really well. It's like... Um, this wasn't planned. This was not planned. This giant wave hitting me. Um, I have always said that if it wasn't necessarily me or a contemporary of me, someone British, someone living that lifestyle in London at the time that had designed the wannabe loafer, if it had been an Italian designer or a French designer and it was just a shoe yeah. and there was no ethos behind it, that it would have done what it did and faded and gone away. It wouldn't have built and built and built and become what it was. Um, I think... There's so many things that were confluent at the same time. Yeah. One of the huge things being Britpop. Mm. I mean, I became the shoe ambassador of England. You know, there was yeah. a Doc, Doc Martens, obviously. And then for that period, wannabe loafers. You know, if you saw a group of English people together, or you just looked down and see they all had wannabes on. Yeah. I mean, it just became, you know, the uniform and everything. And Cool Britannia took over the world. Remember mm-hmm. the Cool Britannia sure cover? Do. A Vanity Fair. So Cool Britannia took over the world. So whoever was cool in Tokyo, in New York, in Milan, wherever had wannabe loafers. Yeah. And it just became something more than that. It also lasted longer than, let's say, a shoe trend because they were so damn comfortable. Mm, mm. (laughs) You know, another perfect confluence is that nightclubs didn't allow sneakers in at this point. Mm. So people wanted dancing shoes. So wannabes, I mean, the the dance floor was just a sea of wannabes. You know, if I was ever in a bad mood one day, I lived in Notting Hill, I'd just walk down to Portobello, sit in a cafe, and by the time I got to whatever number I chose that day, 100, 200 pairs, I'd feel validated and go back home. (laughs) I'd know how much money I'd made, and I was like, they love me. (laughs) They love me. (laughs) I love it. It was, yeah, it was twisted ties, but... um, Exciting times. Exciting times. So, so when it was at its peak, tell me about the reality of, of being in that bubble when it was at its complete peak. It was berserk at one point. It was, but it was pre-cameras, mm. pre-Instagram. Everything then seems so much smaller yeah. because it's just amplified around the world. But then it also feels more real because there only were four people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> and there really were only four yeah, people yeah. in the room and not one of them took a picture and then broadcast it to the rest of the world, you know? Yeah. So there was an authenticity. There was... A complete amateur hour. I mean, we, we just were throwing ourselves into it. I mean, yeah. my company sold 2,000 pairs of shoes a season. 
pre-designing the wannabe loafer. So this is your shop. You had your shop pre-wannabe, right? Like yeah, the wa- yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. Chelsea. Yeah, on, on Simon Street, just opposite the side yeah. of Peter So you're Jones. selling 2,000 pairs. Worldwide, uh, yeah. 4,000, a few thousand through the store and everything. Then we launched Wannabe. The first season, we set a goal of 10,000. We sold 20. The next season, we sold 100. And the next season, we sold 250,000. So we went in 13 months from being a company where I was me and two people. <laughs> that was the whole company. And I yeah. worked in the store. Yeah. When I wasn't in Italy, I worked in the store. You know? yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had had to manage the queue. There would be 300 people in line in front of the store. There would be German MTV going up and down and, and interviewing the line. Why are you standing in front of this shoe store? There would be style magazines, you know, from Tokyo. There would just be this insanity. Um, then we had to get a bouncer because all my friends who work in press were like, we can't ever get to the shoes because, you know, if we come on the weekends, it's a five-hour queue. So we had to have a guest list and we had to have a bouncer. <laughs> and then the bouncer asked my PR, can you do the press for me? And she goes, what exactly do you do? And he goes, well, I'm doing all these interviews. She goes, you're doing those interviews because you're standing in front of our store. If you just move two doors down, you're not going to be doing any interviews. And so um, he got annoyed by that. And then he would start to make me wait at the door. Junior's days were numbered. Because <laughs> I wouldn't go, I'm Patrick Cox, do the yeah, whole yeah. lineup. I was yeah, just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah. And then it just steamrolled in every single country. Just, you know, the next country would hit, the next country would hit, the next country would hit. It just grew and grew and grew. Um, and Michael Jackson's people sent, like. Yeah, so it was for thing. the bad album cover. He was going to change his look. They got him to stand on a piece of paper and then they faxed the piece of paper to me because we, we couldn't arrange to see him, whatever. Yeah. And so we made these shoes. We made these really great loafers. Some of them had chain mail across the. the where the keeper is on a loafer. Some of them had a metal plaque with MJ in them. But, you know, just perfect form, everything. Yeah. And then there was just absolute silence. Yeah. And then the whole project came out and he was wearing whips and chains and zippers and yeah. you know, the jerry curl hair and yeah. everything. We're like, what, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> and there was uh, allegedly a decision to not go forward with that look. Right. <laughs> so we, I yeah. never, I did make shoes for Michael. He's wearing my shoes in the Scream video. Um, he's what wearing a, a couple of the videos. What a moment. Yeah, I mean, shoes. Well, I mean, name someone in the. In that area so what, like, what are your favorite, like in terms of cultural moments that want your shoes kind of existed in what are your favorites or maybe maybe ones that you're most proud of kind of chronologically one really wild one was i designed this black and white roll tongue shoe uh in about 85 86 it was one of the shoes i ended up um, giving to john in his show john galliano and um in one week on the terry wogan show um boy george Elton John and the lead singer of Wet 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 wore the same white black and white loafers. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even know who Terry Wogan is. I just that's a really big deal in England. <laughs> but it really felt like I'd become British. Yeah. It really felt yeah. like I'd become British. And then when they were talking about the football terraces just being a sea of wannabe loafers, mm. that I loved. Because, because they were democratic shoes. Yeah, and I'm not preaching to a gay fashion crowd yeah. or an elitist crowd. I'm preaching to freaking lads. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. That, you know, probably wouldn't be that friendly to me maybe if they met me themselves. Yeah. But yeah. it just transcended. Yeah. It transcended everything. And yeah. um, also in Italy, there's this generic thing like a Clark's, a desert boot is called a Clark. Mm. Uh, Chelsea boot is called a Beatles because mm. it was associated with the Beatles. Mm. So I wanted a wannabe or a vanabe, as yeah. they would say in Italy, to yeah. just become, oh, that's a high cut square toed loafer. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So that's what I, I was aiming for generic ubiquitous. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you, you <laughs> say. Ubiquity, ubiquity. You say you, you're a super smart kid, you're ambitious, you had a point to prove clearly you had ambition. And it's all very well going from a shop with three people in it, but you have to then have the brain power 
and the kind of tenacity to get big fast in order to accommodate the demand. Yeah. Like that is hard. Yeah. You didn't have a business man. Like No. <laughs> you, 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 you you had to expand. You had to find a factory. You had to, you know. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and we worked constantly. I mean, I was in Italy Monday to Friday for 20 years. Wow. Um, I dream in Italian still because mm. there was a period of my life where I spoke obviously way more Italian than I did English. Mm. Uh, I only spoke English when I called back to London to check on things were going, but my day-to-day life was in Italian. Um, and then if I wasn't in Italy Monday to Friday, then in one week I would probably do two days in Tokyo, 24 hours in New York, uh, one day in, in Paris and two days in London and then get back to Italy. I mean, it was just, just non-stop. I remember being in Tokyo and seeing the Japanese PR's <laughs> call sheet and it was like 8.01 Mr. Cox oh, 8.02 get an elevator 8.05 oh, get in car 8.00 I'm like how many pages is that called oh, God, for? God. You know my life got down to being timed in minutes at that point. Yeah. It was great. Did that suit you at the time? Were you happy to, to be swept along by it all? You know I it was a way of feeding I say the demon, but it appeased my insecurities. Yeah. Um, because continually during all of this, I had, you know, imposter syndrome. The entire time, I'm going, they're going to figure out I don't know anything. Yeah, they're going to figure out I don't know. I mean, you're yeah. selling millions of pairs, whatever. They're going to figure it out. They're going to figure yeah. it out. They're going to figure it out. So the whole time I had that, but it 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 appeased that mm. that that need um, to be loved, that need to be safe, mm. that need to belong. So I made my company. And the fashion world, not a great world to make it the be all of your life. Yeah. But I made that, you know, very much um, my family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like beyond work, which I can't imagine there was much time for, I can imagine you were invited to every single party in town and like part of, you know, so, social opportunities were <laughs> party pat. Party pat, so, yeah. So, so how do you feel about party pat now looking back? It was great. We just have to say that Janet Jackson is the one who christened you, yes. Party Pat. That's yes. it's very important for people to know that. <laughs> yes, um, I was at um, an Oscar party, one of, as you do, um, one of the very first Elton Oscar parties that I went to. So this is like 97, 98, whatever. Um, and she was at another table and I was at my table. And then when the show's over, they clear back all the tables and get them to um, yeah. come in and, and then dance and everything. And so my table didn't get moved because of where it was, but everyone else's table moved. And so I'm sort of dancing and grooving on my own yeah. and everything. She just comes up to me and she's like, I like your style. I like the way you move. And I went, what? <laughs> and she was with <laughs> Jam and Lewis. Yeah. And my table was there and it was yeah. empty because everyone got up and everything. I said, oh, come sit down and join me. And so she came and sat and joined me and then, all these other people, because it's Janet Jackson, yeah. <laughs> came up and started to hang out and everything. At least Marie Presley, all these sort of people. Um, and then she just said, I'm going to call you Party Patch because wherever you go, there's a party. And that was it. And I love Janet. Oh, what <laughs> so a that day. was a big moment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of crazy celebrity moments. I mean, I had an amazing time until it wasn't. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When did it stop feeling good? Can you remember? Was there a point? Um, yeah, first of all, business decisions. Um, so it's the late nineties, we're opening one or two stores a year. And then these fashion supergroups arrive out of nowhere, the Gucci group, the Prada group, the Louis Vuitton group. And instead of your competition being one designer who has certain access to this, and you've got a group (laughs) that has access to finance, to banking, to Mm. property, to all the rest of it sort of thing. And then the playing field change. So then all of a sudden, you know, Prada and people like that were opening 20 stores a year as opposed to me opening one yeah. store a year. So I I didn't even have an overdraft at the bank at this period. Yeah. My company just functioned yeah. and we had money in the bank and we did things. Uh, we had no access to financing, leveraging, anything of the sort. And everyone's like, you need to get an investor, you need to get an investor, you need to get an investor. And the first set that got involved, um, the day before we did the deal, the guy called me up and he goes, I'm not investing in you. I've created a vehicle and I'm bringing four friends along for the ride. I went, what the fuck does that mean? Are you investing or not? He goes, yes, yeah. but it's going to be a limited company. That made a really big difference. Yeah. <laughs> and then after about a year and a half, um, the head of them, the guy that had brought the four friends along, he said, we're not really contributing, are, are we? And I was like, no, not really. And mm. he goes, should we exit? And I was like, that, yeah, that'd be, that'd be helpful. <laughs> and so instead of wanting an investor yeah. all of a sudden we needed, needed an investor because yeah. we had to replace an investor and I shotgun wedding got kind of thrown into bed with this Chinese businessman okay. and um, and that was pretty well close to the end right. <laughs> very 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 quickly made everything um, unworkable right and um, I got hit by a car oh no February 2nd 8:45 in the morning um, I lived in little Venice at that point and um, the roundabout on the flyover. Yeah, I, I know. I got it. hit by a guy in a white van and went full speed into a brick wall. Um, broke seven ribs, bruised my lung, punctured, um, punctured oh my, my lung, bruised my God. heart. I was in hospital and in hospital, uh, well, it turns out I'm opiate resistant, so morphine doesn't work on me. <laughs> we found that out in the hospital because I was in the oh ICU and I was screaming and God. screaming and screaming. And this nurse comes over and she goes, why don't you shut up? And I went, I'm in so much pain. She goes, you've had more morphine than the whole ward. You've had enough to kill an elephant. And I said, well, then maybe something's not working. And bless her, the number one pain specialist in England practices out of St. Mary's Paddington. So he right. came down and did some tests on me. And he goes, oh, yes, well, congratulations, you're opiate resistant. I was like, great give me the good stuff the bad news is there is nothing There's else no good stuff. there is no good stuff so God. they put an epidural into my spine yeah and i stayed in the hospital for a month couldn't go home with an epidural in your spine yeah. obviously but at least i wasn't in pain anymore yeah and then when i got back to work after being in hospital everything everything was bad news the staff were quitting the factories were in uproar the magazines were suing i mean everything was mad and um and i i, I left i said I'm, wow. I'm, I'm done wow yep and that must have been quite the shift in terms of well, that was my, you know, because like, because you're wor- your identity, you lose your name. That's what I mean. So your literally. your name is your your yeah. name is your work, which is your identity, which is your success, which yeah. is I mean, it's all so enmeshed. Yeah, and just you know, 
everything went through the company because I was constantly working. Mm. So, you know, I constantly, okay, not, not what I did in London, but, you know, I was constantly traveling and everything and everything was company, 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 company. And we'd erected these beautiful walls all around the company to protect me forever. And then I found myself on the outside of the walls that I erected and no way back in. Wow. I'm like, oh. How <laughs> old were you when this happened? 44, 44. Right. Okay. 44, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then everything changed. Then um, I, got, I basically had a bit of a nervous breakdown. No, I, sure. became, I became um, completely agoraphobic. Um, I had a four-story house in Little Venice, and I couldn't leave one floor for about a month. Luckily, there was a bathroom on that floor, but the kitchen wasn't on that floor. Right. Uh, my my long-suffering, wonderful PA Anita would come over and bring food up to that floor and you know, say, you're going to come downstairs today, you're going to come outside. And then she got me to go see a therapist and I was like hanging on to the lamppost after getting out of the taxi, just trying to deal with the open road. And It was new to me because I'd never experienced that. I'd always said to some people, just get over it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, how, could you, how could this really be affecting you? But yeah. it, it really uh, was a huge struggle. I mean, just huge. And then just obviously just continual suicide ideation, thoughts, 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 yeah. thoughts. It's like this, my good years are behind me. This, you know, it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. Um, yeah. All of that sort of stuff. And then I ended up going to the Hoffman. Right. Uh, have you heard of the Hoffman? I've heard it's a rehabilitation place. Yeah, it? it's an eight-day intensive psychodrama. It's all about yeah. stopping intergenerational pain. Yeah. And, okay. I mean, I, I just Breaking think everybody everybody should have it before they have a kid because yeah. there's so much stuff we're oh, doing that we don't even realize. Totally. <laughs> I don't have a kid, but you just, yeah. there's patterns that are there, yeah. Yeah. and you can change them. Yeah. You can really change them. And that was my first touch of the gray area. Let's get to part two then, which is Toad. Um, <laughs> and I'd never heard of it before I read this article that you did at The okay. Guardian. So, and I can imagine it being new to the majority of our 99. listeners. 99.9999% of the world, um, yeah. <laughs> so tell us how you came about it. When did you learn about it? Tell me everything. Okay, so Toad is, is what it is. It's a toad. Um, unlike you might see in movies or cartoons, no one is licking any toads. That is not how it is done. Um, it is a... Uh, land toad. It's the biggest land toad in, in the Americas, and um, it has glands on its body, on its shoulders, and on its forearms, and on its neck, and these glands release a toxin. In this toxin is the chemical 5-MeO-DMT, which is deemed the Mount Everest of psychedelics. It's the most psychedelic substance known to man. To call it a psychedelic is probably a misnomer. The term psychedelic has so much baggage, first of all, because of the 60s and everything like that, sure. and psychedelic implies visions and psychedelic colors and shapes, your, your classic acid trip, your classic mushroom trip, things like that. Toad, I prefer the term entheogen, which reveals the God within. It's sacred. <laughs> I can't believe I'm using these words, but they're words that I use now, born atheist, using the word sacred, but there's, there's a divinity uh, to this compound. And um, you smoke the medicine in a ceremony situation you accelerate, it's like being strapped to the outside of a rocket ship, let's say, you accelerate to a point of full expansion. And then at that point, it's called a near-death experience, an ego-death, you don't physically die, your heart doesn't die, but your sense of self ceases to exist. So like a drop of water being dropped in the ocean, you, at this moment where you expand to such a great amount, you become one with everything and there is no more you. So there is no, any other experience, there's the observer and the subject. Mm. With this, there is no more observer subject. You are everything, you are one. 
sounds insane to explain, I know. And sometimes I think, what is coming out of my mouth? But I've been there. I've done it um, you know, over 100 times, whatever. I now work with it. It's life-changing, life-changing. I call my life pre-toad and post-toad. Everything that I was told in rehab, yeah. when I was in the Hoffman, when I was in therapy, even religion, everything they say to you is fundamentally the same message, but it's just people talking at you. Mm. It's just people telling you, which I have a problem with authority, I have a problem with listening, people telling you, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Toad shows you. Mm. So people say, I mean, you've heard it so many times, various versions, the longest journey is from the head to the heart. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> well, what does that mean? You know, live in your heart, not your head. What? You know, how, how do you do that? And I hadn't realized how much this inner dialogue, this inner monologue had consumed me. I, I'm not crazy. I don't hear voices. Yeah. But it's your ego telling you, don't do that, do this, you know, just controlling you. But my ego had erected a perfect wall all around me that I was trapped and couldn't do anything mm. because I didn't dare do anything. And the toad just turned all of that off, all the voices off. And what was there? Bliss, love, self-acceptance, realizing you're good enough. Can you tell us about that? First of all, like, how did you come to learning about Toad? After the Hoffman, then I st- um, stayed in London, did a few things, did a crazy bakery called Cox Cookies and Cake, yeah. a few things like that. Then I moved to Ibiza. I knew I needed to change my life completely. Mm. It, it, was, it was toxic, my life in London. Uh, I was doing way too many drugs. Mm. Um, not really going out, not using London, not going to Mm. museums, not going to this because I felt the need that I had to perform and be Patrick, the the one that they wanted, not the one who was actually really sad and depressed and really didn't want to talk to anybody. So announced I was moving to Ibiza, came to Ibiza, and Ibiza in the winter (laughs) is like therapy, like rehab, because there's a lot less distraction, i.e. there's not Mm. a lot to do, a lot less people. So if there's something you don't like about yourself, you're going to have to deal with it because you've only got yourself all day, every day. Mm. And as someone who had never felt safe my whole life, once I was in a place of absolute calm, my mind went nuts and created dramas. It just couldn't deal with this this was okay. I, I didn't know how to deal with myself. Mm. And so I ended up going to rehab. And then I came back after rehab. Some new friends here um, were microdosing uh, LSD. Mm. And they said, you know, I know you don't want to do that. I don't do that. You don't want to try this. I said, well, I did acid when I was like a teenager. I said, it never really agreed with me. Mm. Um, they said, yeah, but you're not doing it for recreational reasons. You're doing it for healing, medicinal mm. reasons. You know, it's a total different thing. It's all about your intention when you take it. You know, and I hadn't really fully understood that. But I mean, they were completely mm. true. Um, and so I did that for about three months, but it just made my stomach gurgle. It just right. really wasn't my thing. Yeah. My friend said to me, oh, there's this person coming to coming to the island that uh, that's serving toad, and we've all reserved to be part of this ceremony. Do you want to be part of it? I was like, talk me through it. So they arranged this. Um, some of the people said, mm, I don't really think he can do that because you need to have done Aya for like 10 years, ayahuasca, before right. you graduate to toad. So I spoke to the facilitator. And we talked for several hours and everything on the phone before she flew in. And she goes, no, no, Patrick's ready. Patrick's ready based on what I was going through in my life. The first day I did it, I went twice because you go once, land, then go again. And I went twice. And I was the first person to go just because that was the way it was. So I had nothing to go by. So you hadn't watched anyone else do it. No, You didn't didn't know what was going to happen. Nothing. nothing. And I was just like, that's the best way to do it. Just throw yourself in. So And then uh, that night when we were in integration, everyone's talking. They were all going on about God and this and that. And I'm like, eh, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. I said, yeah. I mean, it was amazing and it was beautiful, but it, 
hasn't changed my life or yeah, you know, I don't, I, feel I, that I, I, I don't yeah. know what, what, what you're talking about. And then they all said, he needs to go again. So a slot was made for me on the last day, on the Friday. And on the right. Friday, everyone had gone home. It was just me, her and this other friend of mine. And I did, a, I did the first dose and sat up within 30 seconds. No, nothing. And they're like, did you tell them you were opiate resistant? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it very was, important it, info. We, we still don't know to this day how, how yeah. that was possible. Yeah. But I just sat up. And then I started to like get internally angry. You're an idiot. You don't know how to do this. You did this wrong. See, And I just started to blame myself. Then I started to look at going, these people are mad. What are you doing? What did you expect? And you know, all just, yeah. you know, this all took a second. Yeah. But it was in my head. And she yeah. could see the whole point yeah. of these ceremonies and told us to surrender to surrender yeah. and I was not surrendering my walls were coming boom 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 yeah. boom boom, boom up. Yeah. and she said you're going again right away right now and so yeah. I did went again right away to increase the dosage just a little bit and then I guess 20 minutes later I sat up and my life was changed um, I was just in this, this sense of peace love acceptance um, I started breathing funny and they're like are you okay why, you know, why are you breathing funny I said someone has been sitting on my chest for 50 years and he just got off I, my heart felt bigger, my lung capacity felt bigger, and I just just looking at everything, and I was like, were the were the trees always this green? Was the sky always this blue? I just didn't notice because I had a gray filter to my reality, and like unplugging a TV and plugging it back in, I had a psychic reboot, and I came back to where I was before all the conditioning. So you go back to you know, basically a child, a baby, before all the conditioning of you're not worthy and you do this to earn love and you're not that and you're this and you're that and you're fat and you're thin and you're this and all those sort of things come to play. You're just a perfect being. Like everyone's a perfect being. Yeah. I'm not just a perfect being. Yeah, everyone's yeah. a perfect being. Yeah. And it was just life transformative. I mean, just why would I ever go back to anything ever again? So from that moment, how has your life changed? Well, I mean, I hated this island and I hated this house. I mean, I was yeah. seeing a therapist. I was like that godforsaken fucking rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She goes, you keep blaming the rock. It's a rock, Patrick. <laughs> it doesn't care. And I was like, oh, you're rude. You're fired. I mean, I was like, <laughs> if anyone challenged me, I was like, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Let me dwell in my negativity yeah. and everything. And the day after Toad, I was <laughs> in that pool yeah. on the phone with a friend going, I love Abitha. I love my house. And they're like, what? <laughs> he goes, there's like 10 people thinking you're swinging from a rope yeah. any minute now. And he yeah. goes, can I record that? I was like, I don't care. And it's... You know, anyone can say you were high. Well, this yeah. was the day later. Yeah. And now yeah. it's three years later. And yeah. I still feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, so yeah. it's, I mean, my classic line is I just, I came to him and I said, what was I thinking for the last 50 years? Because <laughs> it's literally what you're thinking that's hurting yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. And it was just um, acceptance, self-acceptance. And more than that, self-love. Self-love, self-acceptance, love of my fellow, fellow man. Um, Has it changed your relationships with your family at all? Yeah, completely. Really? Um, I mean, my mum and I, we speak probably three times a week. We speak all, all, all the time. Um, and you didn't and, previously? No, we'd, we'd have, you know, we'd spoke. We, we got up to, let's say, like once every couple of weeks now. But there right. was always a little bit of a strained edge yeah. to it and everything. And now I'm just like, I love you. My dad, I wrote an email to at Christmas. That's the first time I've had any contact with him in a decade or something like that. My my older gay brother, we got in, I got in contact with him in January. That's the first meaningful contact since I was probably 16. How is he? He's great. He wants to toad. 
he, he's like, if if this happened to you, he's like, what can happen to yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, what's gonna happen to me? I mean, even my mom, but she can't because she's eighty five and she's on heart thinners and things like that. But she was like, whatever you did is amazing. And she, and I said, could I, you know, I would just like to get our whole family together and all of us do this and just heal some generational pain that's gone on and gone on and gone on and gone on and gone on. I don't know. We'll see if that happens or not, but it's... So for people who don't really know anything about ayahuasca or, or, or kind of have this preconception of, as you say, like psychedelics being, you know, acid tabs and stuff. I know it's a spiritual thing. Yeah. I know that's really important. But in terms of how does it work? I, you know, I'm, I'm working on a documentary now, The Road to Toad. And at the end of the documentary, I'm going to go... I don't know what's going on. Okay. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I'm here. I'm still learning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for the days that I think it's universal consciousness, God, you know, then the next day I'm like, it's shutting down the default mode in my brain, you know. So what they scientifically, what it does is it seems to shut down the default mode network in your brain, which is where your sense of self is. Wow. And then it allows all the other parts of your brain to synapse and fire to each other so you think out of the box. Right. You have a cha- chance to change. So you have to change kind of and to stop those addiction. those well-trodden pathways, yeah. the kind of neural pathways. Yeah. Neuroplasticity, um, you know, you can, you know, when you've come, after you've done toad and everything, I say to people, if you use your phone too much, don't pick up your phone for the next 72 hours. If you smoke too much, don't pick up a cigarette yeah. after the ceremony. Mm. Obviously, do not drink yeah. and you do other things. But I said, but, you know, just give yourself time to adapt to these new new paths in your brain. and. Mm. You know, mm. it's it's the results have been incredible, mm. um, and scientifically the results have been incredible because there's this huge resurgence of psychedelics, as we yes. all know. Yes. With toad, you smoke the venom, you have a ten to fifteen minute experience, then you land, and you have about another ten minutes where you sort of surf a wave, where you're sort of in it and not out of it, and within forty five minutes you're good to go. I mean, you know, obviously you need to have counselling, you need to have yeah, support, yeah. you need all these sort of things that you need with any psychedelic. Yeah, but the short intense time period of is what's really appealing to the, to yeah. the pharmacy So you world. now have toad in your life that's something you do regularly and kind of top up and Yeah, I probably do it about once a month through a series of events. I met this man named Cesar Cesar Reyes yeah. um, who is a toad facilitator. My dog who's now passed is named Cesar. I yeah. have Caesar on my wrist. Yeah. His husband shook my hand. He had Caesar on his arm. We met, we talked. He wow. came over he had an English bulldog that had just died, so he fell on the ground and started hugging my dog. Oh. And then we had this conversation, and I told him how much I'd un- I disliked to be and how happy I was now. And he said, why? I said, oh, I did this thing called Toad. And he just started nodding. And I said, what do you do? He goes, I'm a Toad facilitator. And I went, okay. Thank you, universe. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah. So I worked with him for about a year and a half, going monthly, doing all sorts of adventures together. And then he asked me to be his uh, apprentice about a year and a half ago. He knew he was ill. We didn't know yet. I mean, he already was on dialysis, and we knew he had um, cancer, but he'd said it was under control. But December 5th this year, uh, last year, he he passed away at the age of 49. Oh, my God. And left this whole... Legacy. Legacy, yeah, legacy to to me. Patrick, what do you want to do with with this next phase of your life? Uh, I what do I want to do with the rest of my life? One of the things I loved you saying about was this idea of um, how people assume that once you get past kind of thirty six or something, then that's just you. Yeah, and life is just you. But how you go through all these evolutions and phases in your life, and 
you're completely different to how you were even 10 years well, ago. Even well, we with, know with, because 10 years with ago... With cellular were... generation, you are literally not the same person that was here 20 years yes. ago because that person's yeah. been gone and been yes. disposed of and it's a different literal physical being in front of you. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've changed and changed and changed. Um, the one change, you know, you're allowed to change between 5 and 15 and 15 and 25 and then 20. But then all of a sudden between, let's say, the age of 30 and 55, there's no real change. Everyone is kind of doing what they're doing. Mm. I changed pretty well everything. Um because I just think change is difficult. Change hurts. Sitting in the same place, which isn't serving you, feels more comfortable, but you're really <laughs> destroying yourself. Yeah. Um, so if you can just find the strength um, to change and just do something, just go with your gut. Just go with what makes you happy. I don't know what's going to happen from this movie. I don't know. I'm writing a memoir now. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen from the memoir. It might end up being, you know, interest this. It might be this. Mm -hmm. It might be that. I just think if more people talk about this, more people talk about psychedelics and the more normal the conversation will become. Mm. Um, and I'd kind of tried everything. I wasn't like last chance saloon, but you know, suicide was a continual option in my life <laughs> for about 20 years. That's just not normal. Mm. That was just, it was one of the cards on the table. Now I can't even imagine that. I can't, can't even imagine it. I just, you know, every day is so amazing mm. <laughs> no matter what it's going to be. But my, parameters have changed because my before my success was measured on popularity mm. finance press mm. you know all all of those sort of things now i sit here <laughs> alone in silence with my dog most of the time and i'm having a great time yeah. <laughs> i'm having yeah. an absolutely great time yeah. no problem whatsoever i i i don't don't need those things mm. that was something i'd said i said i've been running since i was a child and after toad i just stopped running yeah. No, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Genuinely happy. And just sitting here with you, seeing this, the kind of end of the story so far. Um, it's a real privilege to, to, to be in your space and to, to, uh, to get to hear your story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Patrick Cox. Um, I guess there's lots of takeaways from this conversation, but one of them would be that it's never too late to change. You know, I like that Patrick put into question the notion of changing your life, having an age limit. Why should, once you get to a certain point of your life, that be it? I think, you know, you always hear about these men having a midlife crisis and kind of buying Porsches and getting, you know, girlfriends half their ages. Um, I kind of like feel for them, not the affairs, but just the idea of panicking at the idea of this being your life, this being your lot, and that's it. So you end up doing extreme things to kind of challenge that idea. And I think if you had in your head this kind of constant feeling of flexibility and adaptability and kind of openness to new things to learning new things and always kind of checking in and changing your life and tweaking it here and there I think you probably would be less likely to have um, those affairs um, but I mean I think personally I have definitely had some sort of a midlife crisis and I would consider myself open to change and I think a lot of it is circumstantial you know because when you have a family when you have other people depending on you and you know you have a career which means that you have to be in the same place it's not as easy to just kind of up and change your life you are indebted to other people and they're indebted to you so it's how can you change your life within the boundaries of what you have control over um, and that's why I keep talking about those small changes you know and how much they can help 
Uh, big up to Patrick. He is clearly a man who is not afraid of change and has embraced it and it's really, really worked for him. So um, I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. As always, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your family, pass it on. And we will be back next Monday with another edition of Changes. See ya. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.